The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode of The Aftermath for May 15th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post the latest episode of The Aftermath, a narrative podcast series from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, on picking up the pieces after the January 6th insurrection. Episode 3 of The Aftermath looks at what Congress was doing in the days immediately after January 6th. In the episode, you'll hear from experts and from people who were actually there, on both sides of the proceedings, including Representative Jamie Raskin, the lead impeachment manager, and David Schoen, the lead defense lawyer for Donald Trump. This is The Aftermath, Episode 3. There were 14 days to go, and we didn't know what direction anything was going in. I mean, the vast majority of insurrectionists left unarrested, right? They just walked out, which was quite a stunning thing to observe. Um, There were all kinds of calls uh, on the violent right-wing extremist websites to finish the job, to go back to your hotel and motel rooms and cars and get the guns. And some were saying, do that the next day. Some were saying, um, do it on inauguration day, but don't let Don't let Biden get sworn in on the 20th. If you followed the second impeachment trial, you probably recognize this voice. I'm Congressman Jamie Raskin from Maryland's beautiful 8th Congressional District, and I serve on uh, the Judiciary Committee, I serve on the Oversight Committee, I serve on the Rules Committee, and I'm on the January 6th Select Committee. In the days after the January 6th insurrection, for Raskin and his colleagues— it wasn't entirely clear that the insurrection was over. So there was, a, there was a lot of fear and anxiety and trepidation. And Donald Trump had essentially fulfilled the worst of people's expectations. I mean, Michael Cohen testified to us in the Oversight Committee that there was no way that Donald Trump would leave the office nonviolently. So... People were expecting different things. So the question was, well, what do you do with these final two weeks? How do we make sure that there's a peaceful transfer of power? And for at least a brief moment, there seemed to be some kind of consensus. Bipartisan at that point. Very few Republicans were lying about it. Even Jim Jordan said that was as wrong as wrong could be. And Mitch McConnell was really outraged. And they were putting it right at Donald Trump's doorstep at that point. 
The moment turned out to be brief indeed, at least with respect to accountability for Trump himself. Within a week, the consensus had devolved into a sharp partisan divide. The House had passed an article of impeachment charging Trump with incitement to insurrection, but only a small handful of Republicans supported it. Less than two weeks after that, President Biden had taken office and Raskin was prosecuting the former president in Trump's second impeachment trial. I note the presence in the Senate chamber of the managers on the part of the House representatives. Mr. President. Majority leaders recognize. Mr. President, in a moment, I will call up a resolution to govern the structure the second impeachment trial, Donald John Trump. Thank you, Mr. President. Good morning, Senators. Um, over the... Announcing the subpoenas of five witnesses the committee says helped organize the rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol. We cannot leave the violence of January 6th and its causes uninvestigated. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. You don't answer our questions. You create rigmarole logjams. Former President Trump is trying to stop the White House from turning documents over to the House Committee investigating. This is The Aftermath, Episode 3, Congress Responds. Before we delve into Congress's reaction, let's check back in on the four representative January 6th defendants Lawfare Associate Editor Rohini Kurup introduced in Episode 2. Remember, each of these criminal defendants engaged in different conduct on and around January 6th, and each of them has to be investigated and prosecuted individually. And because the facts, the potential crimes, and the level of complexity are different, the investigations don't proceed on the same time frame. So, during the period we're covering in this episode, January 6th through the end of the Senate impeachment trial on February 13th, 2021, what is the status of the cases against these four defendants? The first defendant we are tracking is Eric Munchell. Eric Munchell is a 31-year-old bartender from Nashville, Tennessee, he allegedly entered the Capitol on January 6th, but he's not accused of violence or destruction of property, and he became known to the public as the zip tie guy. Munchell gets arrested almost immediately after the riot, and during the period of the impeachment trial, there was a lot of action in his case. Eric Munchell was arrested on January 10th, just four days after the Capitol attack, and he was initially charged with entering a restricted building or grounds and violent entry and disorderly conduct. His mom, who you might recall was with him in the Capitol on January 6th, was arrested six days after Munchell. The two of them made their initial court appearance in Tennessee. In that appearance, the government asked the Tennessee District Court Magistrate Judge to keep them in custody, but the judge determined that they were fit to release. So, prosecutors went to the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia to appeal their release. Chief Judge Beryl A. Howell agreed to temporarily hold them in jail until another round of review could be completed on their detention, and she ordered the U.S. Marshal Service to transport Munchell to D.C. pending further proceedings in the case. On February 12th, one day before the end of the impeachment, a federal grand jury charged them with three felony counts, obstruction of an official proceeding, entering a restricted building or grounds with a dangerous weapon, and engaging in violent entry or disorderly conduct with a dangerous weapon. The second defendant we're tracking is Richard Barnett. 
Richard Barnett is a 61-year-old man from Arkansas. The indictment alleges that Barnett entered the Capitol on January 6th and specifically entered House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office, where he was famously photographed with his feet propped up on Pelosi's desk. Barnett was arrested on January 8th, 2021. We know a bit more about what Richard Barnett was up to between January 6th and his arrest just two days later. According to prosecutors, after the Capitol attack, Barnett began paying tolls in cash and turned off his location services on his phone. When FBI agents showed up at his house in Arkansas, he told them that he no longer had a cell phone and that they wouldn't find much on his property. At a detention hearing in Arkansas, his partner admitted to moving Barnett's clothing and guns when he returned from D.C. He was arrested on January 8th, among the first people to be arrested and charged in connection with the January 6th attack. Like in Munchell's case, a magistrate judge in Arkansas approved Barnett's release, saying he could safely stay with his partner until his trial. But Judge Howell disagreed, saying Barnett came to the Capitol prepared with a weapon and cloaked with entitlement. And she noted his efforts to evade law enforcement after leaving D.C. Our third defendant is Edward Jacob Lang. Edward Jacob Lang is a 26-year-old from New York. Photos and videos the prosecutor's cite show him violently engaging with law enforcement officers in a crowd by the Lower West Terrace doors of the Capitol building for more than two hours as officers tried to keep rioters out of the Capitol. Lang was arrested on January 16th, 10 days after the attack. Jake Lang, you might remember, was very active on social media on and in the days after January 6th. In one instance, he posted a photo of rioters outside the Capitol with an arrow and the caption, This is me. He also allegedly gave a firsthand account of what happened at the Capitol on social media. He was initially charged with assaulting police, civil disorder, entering restricted grounds, and violent entry or disorderly conduct. A federal grand jury indictment a few weeks later expanded the initial charges against him to include charges for committing violence in the Capitol, civil disorder, and obstructing an official proceeding. The fourth defendant we're watching is Kelly Meggs. Kelly Meggs is a 52-year-old from Florida and is an alleged member of the far-right group The Oath Keepers. Prosecutors claim that Meggs began planning for January 6th months prior. Prosecutors say that on the morning of the 6th, Meggs prepared for the day by equipping himself with communication devices and wearing reinforced vests, a helmet, and goggles. That afternoon, he and eight other alleged Oath Keepers joined together to form a military-style stack and breach the Capitol building, where Meggs stayed for some period of time. Although we know now that Meggs was eventually accused of the most serious crimes, he had not even been arrested, let alone indicted, during the time frame we're covering in this episode. And while all of this was happening and hundreds were arrested by law enforcement, we don't know too much about what Kelly Meggs was doing or the investigation into his activity on January 6th. By the end of impeachment, he had still not been arrested. January 6th itself was traumatic for Congressman Raskin. Unlike Congressman Andy Kim, whom we heard from in the first episode, Raskin was not locked down in his office that day, which was bad enough. Raskin was actually in the House chamber when the insurrectionists tried to break in. But that nationally televised trauma was actually compounding a much more personal tragedy that had happened only a few days earlier. His son, Tommy, had taken his life after a long struggle with depression. The day after laying his son to rest, Congressman Raskin was in the House chamber, ready to perform his constitutional duty to vote to certify President Biden's election. 
sometime in the early afternoon, he got a text message. Well, it was obviously a novel situation, to say the least. I mean, I, I had a text from uh, a friend in California, Alyssa Milano, who said, are you all right? Is everything all right? And I said, yeah, everything's fine. What do you mean? And she said, you know, there's been a breach in the building. They've entered the building. And then suddenly I started seeing all around me people getting these messages. Just moments later, uh, Speaker Pelosi was escorted off of the floor. It seemed like it might just be temporary. She left her um, cell phone behind. The, the rest of the Democratic leadership, the Republican leadership, they were all escorted off of the floor. Someone sent me the, um, the picture of the guy bearing the Confederate battle flag in Statuary Hall. And it was really a stunning image. And I crossed the aisle. I was sitting across from Liz Cheney and I said, Liz, look, check this out. It looks like we're under new management here. And she just looked at it and she just shook her head and said, what have they done? And then I heard um, this terrible barreling sound of people trying to pound their way into the chamber. People flooded over there to try to reinforce the door, but then police officers came in with their guns drawn. Everybody got backed and they stood, they stood there. And, um, you know, it was just chaos for the next 10 or 15 minutes. Our new chaplain who was on the third day of her job, got up, gave a, a rather moving prayer for those who were present. Somebody got up and told us to put our gas masks on. We didn't even know we had gas masks, but they were under our seats. And so everybody began fumbling with those. And there was some shouting going on. Some of uh, my Democratic colleagues were yelling at the Republican side of the aisle that you did this, you this is what you wanted, you know, that kind of thing. It actually wasn't just Democrats who were reacting this way. Here's Michael Barbaro of The New York Times talking to Congresswoman Liz Cheney about her experience that day. And it has been reported that on that day, a House Republican colleague of yours, Jim Jordan, he said something to you. He said, we need to get the ladies away from the aisle. Let me help you. And you are reported to have pushed his hand away and said to him, and I'm, you know, going to use this word because it was published. Get away from me. You fucking did this. Can you confirm that story? Because I think it's important. Yeah, it's 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 true. Uh, you know, I, I was in the aisle, uh, on the aisle, and, and he came over to me, you know, and basically said, we need to get the ladies away from the aisle. And, you know, I, uh, I, I had watched for the months since the election what was going on. And the lies that have been told to people. And, you know, it was both that I, you know, certainly didn't need his help. And mm -hmm. secondly, I thought clearly that the lie that they had been spreading and telling people um, had absolutely contributed to, to what we were living through at that moment. The politics of COVID played a strange role in the House chamber that day as well. The fact that Democrats and Republicans followed such different COVID protocols is dispiriting on any given day, but it took on a new significance in the face of fears that the chamber would become the scene of a mass shooting. Our colleagues who were up in the gallery, 
because remember under COVID-19, the order had been that we should be sitting three seats apart from each other, which the Democrats respected, but the Republicans didn't. So the Republicans were all packed in together. The Democrats, we were spaced apart. And so the, the overflow Democrats were up um, in the gallery where public seating is ordinarily. And um, one of our colleagues was having a panic attack, Susan Wild, and it was pretty chaotic up there. And people were afraid that they would be you know, very vulnerable if a shooter came in. And that's what was going through a lot of people's minds because the way a lot of these mass um, panic situations end is somebody shows up with an AR-15 and that's what runs through your mind when you're thinking about, you know, Pulse night, Nightclub or Newtown, Connecticut or El Paso, Texas or the Charleston shooter. I mean, you know, that's on people's minds. So anyway, then finally someone said, we're, we're getting everybody off of the floor, please come down. And we exited through the speaker's lobby off to the right. To the left is where the mob was, and that's where Ashley Babbitt was shot. And um, and then we were taken you know, down through the tunnels and um, eventually made our way over to um, a committee room that was a, a safe room. Um, and of course, <laughs> there were all kinds of problems there because there were hundreds of people packed in there. And some of our Republican colleagues, like Jim Jordan, refused to put on masks. And so there were then harsh words being spoken about that. Um, and it, a lot of people felt that was just adding insult to injury. Here we were fleeing for our lives because of this violent insurrection that had been um, at the very least tolerated and countenanced, if not encouraged uh, by our colleagues and by the president that they lionized. And then we finally escaped to some kind of safety and everybody's afraid it's gonna become a super spreader event, which of course it did. A lot of people came down with COVID-19 after that. Knowing as we do now, what Congress did after January 6th, that it impeached Donald Trump, it is easy to forget that impeachment was not Congress's inevitable remedy. Impeachment is cumbersome, after all. It requires action in the House, followed by a full trial in the Senate, before the president can be removed. It requires a great deal of congressional energy, sustained over time. But members were afraid of what Trump would do with his remaining two weeks in office. So Congress actually considered other options for dealing with Trump before turning to impeachment. The first option involved the 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And throughout the uh, discussions and uh, the hearings and also in the debates in Congress, it was made clear that the amendment covers both physical and mental disabilities that uh, operate in a way to prevent you from discharging your powers and your constitutional powers and duties. And it could be all kinds of physical disabilities. This is a very rare recorded voice of an actual framer of the United States Constitution. His name is John Furick. He was the dean of Fordham Law School until 2002. And as his Wikipedia page modestly notes in its final paragraph, quote, 
Furyk was primarily responsible for the composition of the 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And what I recall, illness in the context of uh, sanity and and insanity, and you have statements in the record about senility and, uh, you know, different uh, areas, uh, very much is in the uh, 25th Amendment area. However, as, as, as Republican as Senator Rusker and others said, you really need hard facts and reliable facts. You just can't uh, deal with it on uh, speculation. Uh, and that's why uh, the two-thirds vote is in both houses of Congress to prevent the president from resuming his powers and duties. That's, a, that's, that's an even greater protection of the presidency than the impeachment two-thirds. In the immediate aftermath of January 6th, Congress wondered if one option for dealing with Trump was a constitutional remedy even more immediate than impeachment. Could the cabinet remove Trump involuntarily under Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, And could the action be sustained in the legislature if it did? Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are calling for the removal of President Trump. Some say he incited the violence, and besides the impeachment, they also want to invoke that 25th Amendment. Now, the 25th Amendment provides the procedures for replacing the president or vice president in the event of death, removal, resignation, or incapacitation. There's also a clause that addresses if a president could become physically or mentally unable to perform their duties. In that circumstance, the vice president would assume those powers. The 25th Amendment was ratified in the years following the Kennedy assassination, when questions about presidential succession had become very vivid. What if Kennedy had not been killed, but had been incapacitated? A few months before the assassination, Furyk had written a very prescient law review article, arguing that Congress needed to send an amendment to the states to deal with this problem. After the assassination, he helped Congress do just that. Of sudden relevance was Section 4, which allows the vice president and a majority of the cabinet to temporarily transfer the president's power to the vice president in the event of presidential disability. It then allows the suspended president to claw back his or her powers unless two-thirds of both houses vote within 21 days to keep the vice president in power. If you think about this requirement for a moment, it stacks the deck in favor of the suspended president. With reference to Section uh, 4, president is protected because if one-third plus one of either House of Congress sides with the president where there's a disagreement, the president resumes his powers and duties. Nonetheless, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, the 25th Amendment was very much on the table. And the text of the amendment actually contains a little wrinkle that could make it easier for Congress to act, or at least might have, had Congress gotten its act together before the crisis. The amendment gives the vice president two options— have the cabinet vote to suspend the president or act with, quote, such other body as Congress may by law provide, unquote, to declare the president unfit. Actually, Congressman Raskin, a constitutional law professor himself, had been thinking about this provision for a while. I had been talking for for several years about the 25th Amendment, because I had a premonition early on that it was all gonna end up with something like this. And and I thought that 
you know, we should follow through on what the framers of the 25th Amendment wanted to do. I mean, they said that the vice president and a majority of the cabinet or the vice president and a majority of a body set up by Congress can determine that the president is unable to successfully discharge the powers and duties of office. And if so, can transfer the powers to the vice president. And it's not a partisan thing because the vice president's got to be involved in it, right? And so I had been saying the least that we can do is set up this body called for in the 25th Amendment. So if there's a real emergency, we can act. Of course, it was too late at that point to compose compose the whole body, get the people appointed and have it move. So one possible use of the 25th Amendment was off the table. Congress hadn't acted to create a different mechanism that it would have been able to control. The cabinet wasn't leaping to suspend Trump. And even Vice President Mike Pence, who had himself been menaced by the mob and whose involvement would be necessary either way, was showing no sign of interest in moving under the 25th Amendment. So all we could do was to pass a resolution, which I wrote, calling on Vice President Pence to activate the Section 3 of the 25th Amendment, call the cabinet together and transfer the powers based on what had happened, or to consider the transfer of powers to weigh it as, as they saw fit. But Pence and the cabinet did not end up invoking the 25th Amendment. In fact, several members of Trump's cabinet were actually resigning at that point. They weren't even around anymore to play a part. The idea never gained traction among the people Raskin needed to take the lead. Shannon has just confirmed that the Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao is resigning from the president's cabinet. Betsy DeVos is now stepping down. DeVos blamed President Trump for inflaming tensions before the riot at the Capitol. A third member of the Trump administration has resigned following the attack on the Capitol. Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf. Pence, who was already running for cover because he had actually done his job on January 6th and now was terrified of the political blowback, um, said he would not do that. That would just, you know, essentially add fuel to the fire. So we were left with impeachment as the mechanism to try to restore some law and order to the situation. There was actually another option, too. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It had become law just after the Civil War, and had been mostly forgotten until January 6th. Section 3 was designed to prevent former government officials who had joined the Confederacy from ever serving in office again. But it seems to describe President Trump pretty well, too. It reads in relevant part, quote, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, In other words, you can't hold office or ever run for office again if you've played some part in an insurrection. Pursuing the 14th Amendment disqualification against Trump had its proponents at the time, Here's former White House ethics attorney Richard Painter speaking to CNN. 
Section 3 of the 14th Amendment disqualifies from public office anyone who has supported uh, an insurrection such as what happened during January 6th at the Capitol on January 6th. Donald Trump is disqualified from public office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But the 14th Amendment option presented some problems. For example, it's not clear what the words, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, unquote, means for constitutional purposes. Is January 6th good enough? Or do you actually need a full-fledged war? Most important, it has never been entirely clear how one would enforce disqualification under the 14th Amendment. How exactly would Congress invoke it if it wanted to? Or is it the case that Congress itself didn't need to do anything to disqualify Trump under the amendment? Could it even be the case that Congress couldn't, at least on its own, formally use the amendment to disqualify him? There is a separate clause in the Constitution which says if you've been an insurrectionist, then the Congress can pass a bill uh, to remove you, to basically bar you from future office holding. It does require only a simple majority, so it is possible to do. However, it may also require a court process to adjudicate guilt or innocence. I think we should welcome that. I think Donald Trump would be scared out of his mind for that court process. If Trump did engage in insurrection or support those who did, as he certainly seemed to have done, Maybe Trump would only be disqualified under the amendment if he ran for office again and someone challenged his eligibility as a candidate in court. Then it would be up to the courts to decide. By the way, starting in January 2022, cases have been brought in courts all over the country attempting to remove from the ballot several members of Congress who supported the rioters on the grounds that they are disqualified under the 14th Amendment. There was a final option for Congress. Do nothing. The election was certified after all. Biden was going to take power on January 20th, a mere 14 days away. Congress had the option of just sitting on its hands, as the cabinet was doing, as Mike Pence was doing, and running out the clock. But Raskin and his colleagues found this option intolerable. This was, as all of us recognized who lived through it, certainly, and I think This was the worst presidential offense against the union in the history of the United States. It's just hard to imagine anything that's come close to it. There may have been other constitutional crimes committed by presidents in war against other populations um, that were as or more egregious. But certainly no president could, um, I think, match Donald Trump for the the brazenness and the egregiousness of this inciting a violent insurrection against Congress, against his own vice president, and against democracy itself. And so, after considering other constitutional options, the House moved quickly to start the impeachment. So, with uh, Congressman Ted Lieu and David Cicilline, we began to draft impeachment articles and come up with a strategy for moving that through the caucus. And Um, That happened in the course of one week between the 6th and the 13th when we voted. So in that time, we voted on the 25th Amendment resolution. We voted on the impeachment resolution. Um, It was reported out of the Rules Committee. It was brought to the floor, and and we impeached him. Note the time frame Raskin mentions here. This all happened really fast, at least as far as congressional action is concerned. 
the insurrection happened on the 6th. On January 12th, the House of Representatives voted on the 25th Amendment resolution, which passed mostly along party lines, with just one Republican, Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger, joining Democrats. But the move was largely symbolic. Pence had already said that he would not invoke the 25th Amendment. Raskin, Liu, and Cicilline introduced the article of impeachment on January 11th. It accused Trump of having incited the insurrection by making statements that, quote, encouraged and foreseeably resulted in lawless action by a mob that had tried to block Congress from performing its constitutional duty to certify the presidential election. It charged Trump with threatening the integrity of the democratic system, interfering with the peaceful transition of power, and endangering a co-equal branch of government. Trump was, according to the article, quote, a threat to national security, democracy, and the Constitution, unquote. The full House voted on the impeachment resolution on January 13th. Uh, here it is, here it there, is right now, 217, yeah. uh, has just been reached. Uh, we've just witnessed a truly solemn moment in American history. The House of Representatives has reached the threshold for making Donald J. Trump the only president of the United States to be impeached for a second time. This vote set up a protracted confrontation on the floor of the Senate between two men who represented opposite sides of the debate, but who, oddly enough, had something in common. They were both in very deep mourning. My hesitation was a number of things, but primarily I'm a solo practitioner, as I say. I've certainly never done anything like this, although not many people have, since there fortunately haven't been many impeachment trials. And, uh, you know, I was hesitant. There was a very short time frame to prepare. And uh, to be perfectly frank, I had just come off of COVID and uh, my mother had just passed away. So uh, it's a very difficult time. This is the voice of David Schoen, the lead defense lawyer in the second Senate impeachment trial of Donald Trump. My entire family had COVID and uh, we were in quarantine and uh, it appeared that the symptoms were mild at first, but then uh, things took a turn for the worst. So anyway, uh, my mother was my best friend in the world. We spent every day together, several times a day. And so uh, it was a very traumatic period for me. Then Joan got a call from President Trump. It's uh, really out of the blue. Uh, I looked this up recently. It was a Sunday night. I think it was January 17th, um, if that's a Sunday. I was sitting at home eating dinner, and I had a phone call, and the fellow on the other end said, uh, Mr. Schoen, this is Mark Meadows. Do you have a minute to talk? I knew Mark Meadows was the chief of staff of the president, but that's about all I knew. And I said, sure. He said, did I get you at a bad time? I said, no, I think chief of staff of the president calls. It's probably a good time. And... Uh, he said, I'd like to ask you whether you would consider representing President Trump in his impeachment trial. So I was certainly taken aback. I'm a solo practitioner in Montgomery, Alabama, civil rights lawyer, criminal defense lawyer, and uh, didn't expect this. So uh, I asked him, tell me a little bit more what he had in mind. And he did. And I said, uh, you know, listen, I certainly would be interested in considering it, but it would depend in part on who was on the team. I had read some articles about who might be on the team for the impeachment trial, and uh, some of those prospective members wouldn't have interest me to work with. So 
he said, well, who do you have in mind? I said, I don't really want to say because, uh, you know, they could be your friends. He said to me, uh, if you want to have a friend in Washington, you should get a dog. So just tell me uh, who you have in mind. So I told him and he said, those people were not on the team. So I said, then I certainly would consider it. We spoke for a while, just getting to know each other a bit. And he said, if I didn't mind, he would have uh, President Trump call me the next day. I said, that'd be fine. But about an hour later, I had a call from President Trump. Uh, didn't say who he was, but I recognized the voice. And it just, David, something like that. And uh, anyway, uh, he was just following up on the call. We ended up speaking for about 45 minutes about a whole variety of subjects. I found him uh, extraordinarily gracious at all times. In fact, he was every time I spoke to him, which was, uh, you know, something quite different from the public persona that I had read about, uh, at least. So anyway, he called me that day. I said I would consider it. Uh, that night he called me. And then the following night, he called me again. It'd be a Monday, I think. <clears throat> and we talked again for about 45 minutes or an hour. And again, I said I would consider it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Right around the same time. Hey there, listener. Do you have something to say? Then you're already a podcaster. You just don't know it yet. Whether you love to shoot the breeze with friends, have an urge to share your passions with the world, or even want to grow your business, you've got something worth saying with a podcast. With Acast, it couldn't be easier to start your own show. Launch, grow, and make money from your podcast across all listening platforms. If you have something to say, you're a podcaster. Head over to Acast.com to get started for free. Raskin received a call from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Essentially, Speaker Pelosi um, asked me whether I would be the lead impeachment manager, um, which was startling to me because, you know, here I was still absolutely reeling and uh, drowning in grief and agony from the loss of my son, Tommy, on the last day of 2020. Um, I was not eating. I was not sleeping. Um, and yet she asked me to do it. And, um, you know, in my book, I say she really threw me a lifeline because I didn't know whether I would ever be able to do anything again, really. I wasn't sure whether I would be able to do anything of meaning or substance again. And she was saying to me, not only will you, we need you to do it right now. We need you now. And so, yeah, so I had to rally to, um, build that team and uh, organize the team and come up with a plan for assembling this mountain of evidence out there, much of it in video images and photographed images on people's cell phones, um, 
get to many get to as many witnesses as we could as quickly as possible um, and build that case and you know um, essentially prognosticate what all of the critical legal issues were going to be um, and write our our brief our what we call our case in the meantime Schoen agreed to represent Donald Trump in the impeachment proceedings. But he doesn't describe the case as a calling that pulled him away from his grief. He describes it, rather, as something he felt obligated to do, despite his grief. I felt that, uh, you know, President of the United States calls you up and asks you to represent him or her. We don't have her yet, but one day. Uh, Then, uh, unless it's something illegal or ethically, morally wrong, that the answer should be yes. So if I could handle it, I would do it. An initial question about Trump's second impeachment trial was why bother holding it at all? Everyone knew that most of the senators had made up their minds before the trial even started. Schoen says he had never faced a jury like this. And when I started out my presentation, I spoke about um, I, I consider it to be, at risk of sounding corny, the real honor of appearing before that body. I'd never been before the Senate floor. I've never been to the Capitol building. Um, and uh, I was uh, awestricken, I would say, to some degree. Uh, not like my experience. When I visit the Supreme Court, I really uh, feel inspired and awestricken there. But this, this was an amazing experience. And so when I looked out and I saw, you know, how it's divided by party even in the seating arrangement and so on. Um, I really just thought about the audience and uh, I wanted to try to connect with everybody there, but uh, I had a sense that I wouldn't be able to connect with many folks and that there were prejudgments made. And so I didn't know how much anything I said would matter. Yet, while Raskin acknowledges that he and his colleagues never had much chance of getting the 17 Republican senators they would need for conviction, for him... The trial was necessary for two reasons. Well, there was a short-term reason and a long-term reason. The short-term reason was that we thought we were in danger and we had to keep him on the defensive um, because we didn't know what else he would try. I mean, people were killed that day. Um, the Congress was shut down and a lot of elements on the right were calling for resurgent, renewed violence. Um, so, and there were, there was talk that he might try to start a war in order to declare martial law and go forward and so on. So we needed to seize the initiative immediately. And of course, long-term, uh, we needed to establish that, um, there's no January exception to the constitution. You, you can't, as an outgoing lame duck president, decide to roll the dice on a coup or an insurrection, or a civil war, or something else that will perpetuate your reign. Neither the impeachment managers nor Schoen and his team had much time to prepare. Trump was impeached on January 13th. He left office on the 20th. The impeachment managers presented their single article of impeachment to the Senate on January 25th. And the impeachment trial was set to begin on February 9th. We had to submit that. We had to write an answer. We had to uh, develop the oral arguments and then coordinate them with 
video testimony, which we knew would be central to people's understanding of what, of what had happened. Because even those of us who were in the inside, or especially those of us who were in the inside, had no real sense of what was taking place outside. We had no sense about the magnitude and the viciousness of the violence that was taking place. 150 officers who ended up with broken jaws, broken necks, broken vertebrae, arms, hands, fingers, lost fingers, broken feet, toes, ankles, legs, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress syndrome, you name it. There were a bunch of cops who were Iraq and um, Afghan war vets who said that they had never seen anything like that in their time abroad, you know, even during active combat situations. They'd never seen anything like it. It was just completely medieval what was taking place. And of course, it was being watched uh, by Donald Trump in real time. Here's Schoen. As we mounted the defense, we knew that the other side had hired a sort of production company to put together movies and that sort of thing, and apparently a large law firm to structure their presentation. And they had a lot of people working on it with some time to prepare. Um, and so those were going to be challenges. Um, I felt that, you know, going into something like this, I, I didn't even watch the first impeachment, so I really didn't know much about it at all. But my sense was, you know, the dynamic was ultimately going to be um, overwhelmingly political rather than, you know, a real interest in the facts and the law and so on. So those were challenges for a lawyer who is used to trials and appeals with rules of evidence and uh, guidance based on the law and on the facts that, that should make a difference, at least. Um, I also was surprised, I suppose, but again, I think it's just naivete because I'm not used to the political world, at the sort of announced, publicly announced prejudgments by members of the Senate, um, one way or another. Shown here is raising an important point about impeachment as a mechanism of accountability. It is completely different from a criminal trial. Impeachment proceedings are more like a series of speeches than a trial in a court. There's no judge, no rules of evidence, no time-tested code of procedures. The jury is composed not of impartial individuals, as jurors in a criminal trial must promise to be, but of senators, many of whom had already announced how they would vote before even hearing the arguments. Besides, Democrats had a legislative agenda to get to, and occupying the Senate's time with the impeachment left little time for any other business, meaning not only that legislating was put on hold, but so was confirming nominees for President Biden's new administration. Meanwhile, Republicans wanted to put the whole episode behind them. So at the end of the day, there were facts to present, and there were legal questions to argue about, but there was not much appetite in Congress for a full-blown trial. I don't think witnesses are necessary. It's, it's kind of a bizarre morning because it, it is chaos that has played out. The constitutional text itself is ambiguous. It could be read one, one way or the other. I think it should be read uh, in an abundance of caution to make sure that it's not abused for partisan political purposes. We are focusing yet again on Donald Trump because the Democrats are still obsessed with him. We're having an impeachment proceeding to convict and possibly remove from office a man who left office three weeks ago. I don't think many Americans think that makes much sense. There was another major limitation to the impeachment option. It could only be about Trump himself. It was not going to answer the unanswered questions about January 6th, 
and it was not going to hold anyone else to account. That would have to wait for oversight hearings and for the January 6th committee in the months to come, which we'll talk about in future episodes. The impeachment trial was really about passing judgment on the former president, deciding whether his actions were, under the Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors, and whether he should be barred from holding office ever again. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silence on pain of imprisonment while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the article of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, former President of the United States. To make their case for conviction, the managers made four key points. First, they had to address the claim being raised by many in the Republican Party, that the impeachment trial couldn't go forward at all because the Senate did not even have jurisdiction to try a former president. Here's what Colorado Congressman Joe Neguse one of the impeachment managers, had to say. Every president is one day a private citizen again. So, I mean, the argument that because President Trump has left office, he shouldn't be impeached for conduct committed while he was in office doesn't make sense. I mean, why would the Constitution include the impeachment power at all if the criminal justice system serves as a suitable alternative once a president leaves office. It wouldn't. Impeachment is a remedy separate and apart from the criminal justice system, and for good reason. The presidency, I mean, it comes with special powers, extraordinary powers, not bestowed on ordinary citizens. And if those powers are abused, they can cause great damage to our country and they have to be dealt with in a separate forum. This forum. Second, impeachment managers refuted Trump's claims that the former president was not afforded due process. Here's California Congressman Ted Liu. You all are going to see and have seen a full presentation of evidence by the House, and you're going to hear a full presentation by the president's attorneys. You're going to be able to ask questions. The Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. President Trump is receiving any and all process that he is due right here in this chamber. Third, the impeachment managers argued that Trump's actions were not simply an instance of the president exercising free speech. Here's Nagus again. Now, some have said that President Trump's remarks, his speech on January 6th, was just a speech. Well, let me ask you this. When in our history has a speech led thousands of people to storm our nation's capital with weapons, to scale the walls, break windows, kill a Capitol police officer? This was not just a speech. It didn't just happen. And as you evaluate the facts, that we present to you, it will become clear exactly where that mob came from. Colorado Congresswoman Diana DeGette explained that Trump's speech incited the crowds, and his words followed a much earlier call to arms. Now remember, 
President Trump told them to stand back and stand by at the debate. They took it as a call to arms. And when they call, he called them to arms, they were all ready to act. They were waiting for their orders, which they got on January 6th. They said he had invited them. And in fact, as we heard, he had invited them. As one man explained on a live stream he taped from inside the Capitol, quote, our president wants us here. We wait and take orders from our president. The impeachment manager's fourth key argument focused on the fact that Trump showed no remorse for his actions. Liu explained why that matters and the precedent it creates. Well, it doesn't take a prosecutor to understand that President Trump was not showing remorse. He was showing defiance. He was telling us that he would do this again, that he could do this again, that he and future presidents can run for national election, lose the election, inflame the supporters for months, and then incite an insurrection, and that that would be totally appropriate. That's why lack of remorse is an important factor in impeachment, because impeachment, conviction, and disqualification is not just about the past, it's about the future. For the Trump defense, the impeachment trial was about making the following points. First, that the Senate did not have jurisdiction to try a former president. Here's Michael Vanderveen, who represented Trump in the trial. This has been perhaps the most unfair and flagrantly unconstitutional proceeding in the history of the United States Senate. For the first time in history, Congress has asserted the right to try and punish a former president who is a private citizen. Nowhere in the Constitution is the power enumerated or implied. Congress has no authority, no right, and no business holding a trial of citizen Trump, let alone a trial to deprive him of fundamental civil rights. Trump's defense lawyers also argued that the former president was not given due process in the impeachment trial. Here's shown during the proceedings. The denial of due process in this case, of course, starts with the House of Representatives. In this unprecedented snap impeachment process, the House of Representatives denied every attribute of fundamental constitutional due process that Americans correctly have come to believe is part of what makes this country so great. How and why did that happen? It is a function of the insatiable lust for impeachment in the House for the past four years. They also argued that Trump's speech did not incite the riot. Here's Vanderveen again. No thinking person could seriously believe that the president's January 6th speech on the ellipse was in any way an incitement to violence or insurrection. The suggestion is patently absurd on its face. This speech, Vanderveen argued, was protected by the First Amendment. If you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. This is ordinary political rhetoric that is virtually indistinguishable from the language that has been used by people across the political spectrum for hundreds of years. You must reject this invitation to ignore the First Amendment. Those arguments left just one thing to do other than vote. Decide whether to learn more. At one level, 
everyone knew what had happened. Everyone knew what Trump had said. After this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. The managers had vividly presented what the mob had done. And everyone knew what the president's defense was. This impeachment has been a complete charade from beginning to end. Nothing but the unhinged pursuit of a long-standing political vendetta against Mr. Trump by the opposition party. But at another level, there were still questions, especially about what Trump had been thinking, what he had intended, and what he had said in private. And there were at least a few witnesses who might be able to answer some of those questions. One obvious candidate for that kind of testimony was Trump himself, who was no longer president by now. But, unsurprisingly, he rejected Democrats' calls for him to testify. Perhaps his aides or advisors could shed some light, or even members of his family. But before anyone could call witnesses to testify, the Senate had to first vote to allow witnesses into the trial at all. Remember, this was not a regular trial. The rules of the road were largely negotiated and decided along the way. For the first several days of the impeachment trial, it looked like neither side would be pushing for witnesses. But late in the day on February 12th, Congresswoman Jamie Herrera-Butler issued a statement describing a conversation she'd had with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. According to Herrera-Butler, McCarthy had called Trump on January 6th and asked him to call off the riot. And Trump had refused, telling McCarthy, Well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. Suddenly, there was real interest in calling Herrera-Butler as a witness. The Senate voted the next morning to allow witnesses in the impeachment trial by a vote of 55 to 45, seemingly paving the way for her testimony. Only hours later, however, a deal was reached to enter Herrera-Butler's statement into the record in lieu of calling her or anyone else as a witness. There was nothing left to do but vote. The yeas are 57, the nays are 43, uh, two-thirds of the senators present not having voted guilty, the Senate judges that the respondent, Donald John Trump, former president of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the article of impeachment, resigning officer directs judgment to be entered. All of which raises a troubling question. Was this accountability? Who won exactly? At one level, the answer to this question is obvious. President Trump won. The managers needed 67 votes to convict him, but they only got 57, well short of the requirement. But at another level, there's a lot to be said for the effort of Raskin and his colleagues to force this matter to trial, even when they didn't have the votes to convict. Trump became the first president ever to be impeached twice. And while 57 does not equal 67, it was actually a pretty strong cross-party vote condemning the former president and his conduct. Well, we did get the most sweeping bipartisan vote in uh, the history of the Republic in the Senate to convict. It was 57 to 43, which to a lot of the foreign journalists sounded like we had won. 
I mean, I was literally explaining to foreign journalists that we lost on that 57 to 43 vote because Trump, you know, beat that constitutional spread. We didn't make it to two thirds. We were 10 Republicans short, but we got seven Republicans. Um, and most people were saying it would be like the first trial where we wouldn't be able to get anybody except maybe Mitt Romney, you know, who who voted to convict on one count. But there were seven Republicans from the Northeast, from the Midwest, from the South, from uh, the West, from Alaska. So they were from all over. There were some surprising people. Senator Cassidy from Louisiana, Senator Burr from North Carolina. To Raskin, the impeachment achieved both its short-term goal keeping Trump on the defensive so he couldn't do more damage before leaving office, and its long-term goal of making it clear that this sort of conduct was unacceptable in a chief executive. And what about for Schoen? What was his strategic objective? And did he achieve it on behalf of the former president? It's another brilliant question, right on. Uh, um, a very practical, real-world question, I hope, answer. Um, I have to say, at first, though, um, you may have known that the Democrats didn't have the votes. I didn't. But again, it only reflects my uh, lack of political savvy. I went to that, like in any circumstance, thinking that a loss is always possible, and that I have to do the best job I possibly can and focus on the issues that I thought were most important to try to have a win. And yes, uh, for me, a win was no conviction. So I think for some people, a win was probably the margin of victory. Um, I don't know, you know, that's completely, the whole thing was out of my control, but that certainly is because I think senators have, you know, their own constituencies to play to and their own agenda. <clears throat> my strategy was simply to put out the, uh, the principles of law as I understood them on the jurisdiction matter. If there's one thing that Schoen and Raskin agree on, it's on the toxicity of the political environment and how that affected the trial. For Raskin, this point deeply affected the trial's outcome and is the reason he does not feel the impeachment was an unqualified accountability success. The framers clearly had not correctly anticipated the stranglehold that partisanship would come to exercise over the imagination of members of Congress. And I'm sorry to say that. I mean, they were aware of partisan and they belong to sort of incipient political tendencies and parties. Um, Madison obviously wrote about faction in Federalist 10 and about the tendency to factionalize. They knew that was part of human nature. They, were, they dealt with that right from the beginning. But they did think that in some sense, members of Congress would identify with Congress first. We would identify with our branch of government against a, a president, certainly a president who tries to incite a violent insurrection against us that could have gotten us all killed, they would have assumed that that would have been a 100% vote to impeach a president for doing that and 100% to convict a president for doing that. But ultimately, most of the majority, uh, I mean, most of the Republicans followed Mitch McConnell or he followed them in basically throwing his hands up and saying what McConnell told us afterwards, which was that Donald Trump was singularly, morally, practically responsible for everything that happened, but he didn't think there was jurisdiction to hear the case. That was an issue we settled on the first day of the trial, 
on a 54 to 46 vote where we elected, where the Senate elected to exercise jurisdiction and rejected all of those arguments that have been rejected historically that the Senate can't try a president who hurries to resign or has left office. Um, there have been many trials of impeached uh, officials who had left office. McConnell hung his hat on that uh, flimsy little hat rack there. And um, I think maybe if a majority of the GOP felt that they had the ability or the courage to vote to convict, McConnell would have gone with them, but he wasn't going to vote to convict unless 26 of the 50 senators were with him because he didn't want to set himself up to lose his position. They knew that. They didn't acquit him because they thought he was innocent. This was just jury nullification. So we ended up with 57 to 43, and Donald Trump is still out there, and we are in the middle of this continuing titanic constitutional struggle for the defense of democratic institutions um, against right-wing authoritarianism. Schoen understands the partisanship very differently, but he, too, believes the environment precluded a just outcome. I have to say that I was very impressed as the proceedings went along with the seriousness and the demeanor of some of the senators who I had a chance to interact with a little bit. I'm thinking now of this Senator Lee from uh, Utah. Again, I didn't know or know anything about beforehand. Senator Portman. Um, A couple of others. Folks who I talked to who I saw were taking this very seriously on the issues. And Senator Portman explained to me that, you know, he was offended by the uh, manner in which and the speed with which this thing was brought uh, to a trial. And so, you know, that was a reason for his vote. So anyway, I'd say my strategy shifted um, to wanting to at least score some points and, and frankly, on substance, expose what I believe to be some of the hypocrisy uh, that I had seen in terms of, you know, using the word fight and uh, those kinds of things. Um, And and the idea that uh, was certainly presented out there uh, expressly and implicitly that anyone who would question the integrity of an election um, was well beyond the pale of appropriate political discourse. And that's why uh, I I asked, frankly, for the videographers to put together videos on a couple of themes that I had selected. And one of them was this idea that, you know, one of the House managers got up and said, uh, can you imagine, senators, that any person would ever say the only way this election was uh, won by a particular candidate was if it were stolen. Of course, that's exactly what one of the senators had said in connection with Stacey Abrams' uh, election. So I played that video, and frankly, I said, you know, we no longer have to imagine, you know, that's been said. And I showed some other clips of people challenging uh, election results and not accepting the results of elections. And um, at times, perhaps with good, solid cause. Um, But anyway, I, I you know, that's how our system works. And I wanted to make that point. So that's how my strategy sort of developed and shifted to the extent I had, uh, I would give myself any credit for having a strategy. I thought the whole idea of the impeachment and the impeachment trial was a bad thing for the country. I thought that uh, after the election and after January 6th, the company country needed to heal. And I thought this would do the exact opposite. I wasn't there when it finished because it ended on my Sabbath. So Um, I wasn't there, so I never got to sort of say goodbye to anybody. However, after my last presentation, 
Um, I actually, uh, I don't think it was apparent, but I, um, I sat down in my seat, but then I had to leave and I started crying uh, <laughs> after my presentation just because of uh, all the emotion I had in mind, uh, my mother, you know, and the idea that I had done, uh, made this presentation on this stage. I had one of my sons there with me and um, I was very emotional about it. So I, I left right away. I think, you know, the, there's talk now about if, uh, you know, the House changes hands, then President Biden will be impeached. I sure hope not. I mean, this is not, it is not a proceeding that well serves the country. I don't believe the framers ever intended impeachment to be used for political purposes like this. The Federalist Papers certainly make clear that wasn't the intention. Um, and I, I would have been telling you the same things about the Clinton impeachment and otherwise. I just, I, I just don't think this is a way for our country to operate. We've got to get back on substance and learn how to work together. It's February 17th, four days after the Senate has acquitted Donald Trump. This particular effort to hold Trump accountable, using one of the most powerful tools at Congress's disposal, has run its course. But a lot of other questions remain. There is also talk brewing of a national commission, something like the 9-11 Commission, to study the questions the trial did not answer. Meanwhile, the FBI and Justice Department are busy. In the short span of the impeachment trial, 40 additional January 6th perpetrators have been arrested or charged. And in Ocala, Florida, the FBI arrests Kelly Meggs, the fourth defendant we've been tracking in this series, along with his wife, who was also allegedly at the Capitol on January 6th. He's initially charged with conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding committing or aiding and abetting such obstruction, conspiracy to prevent members of Congress from executing their official duties, destruction of government property, and document tampering for allegedly destroying records off his cell phone relating to his involvement in the conspiracy. Developing today, a man accused of taking part in last month's Capitol riots appeared in federal court in Tampa this afternoon. But Megs, a member of the Oath Keepers, will not be charged with the most serious offense, seditious conspiracy, for another year. Oath Keepers member Kelly Meg speaks to Fox 35 News about his actions January 6th inside the U.S. Capitol. The political trial of Donald Trump is over. But there are other tools Congress can use to respond in the aftermath of January 6th. Tools to understand how it happened, to fix some of what had gone wrong by passing new legislation, and to impose accountability by exposing the actions of those responsible for the attack. And there is a new Congress in place. Democrats are still in the majority in the House, and the Senate is now split 50-50, with the tie-breaking vote going to the Vice President of the United States, who is now a Democrat. The question is, what will Congress do now? Four to 35 vote, Republicans were successful in blocking the creation of a commission to investigate the deadly riot on Capitol Hill. NBC News National Political Report. The Aftermath is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. Scripting by me, Ian Enright, Rohini Kurup, and Benjamin Wittes. Series executive producers are me, Benjamin Wittes, and Ian Enright. Senior producer is Megan Nadolsky. 
Associate Producer is Rohini Kurup. Interviews for this episode were conducted by me, Matthew Kahn, and Rohini Kurup. Production assistance from Isabel Kirby McGowan, Kara Schillen, and Max Johnston. Research assistance from Catherine Pompilio. To learn more about Lawfare, visit lawfareblog.com, where you can find the Lawfare team's January 6th project, Confronting the Insurrection. The withdrawal from Afghanistan ended in chaos at an airfield in Kabul. But despite the efforts of veterans, lawmakers, and senior leaders in the military, even more were left behind. I moved my family from location to location three times. He was just banging his head against the wall trying to figure out how do I unstick this. The problem was not the idea. The problem wasn't the legislation. The problem was the execution. The Taliban knew all this. That's why they used to shoot at them first. Why is it so hard to track the number of interpreters, translators, and contractors killed as opposed to U.S. soldiers? Because nobody wants to know the number. Our story takes you from the front lines of the war to the halls of Congress to find out how did this happen. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Allies, a podcast about how the U.S. government failed the Afghan translators, interpreters, and partners who fought alongside the U.S. Coming this May.